much, Tony, and to our musicians as well. It is such a treat to have musicians at West who are engaging in different ways and different groupings um, and bringing us different kinds of music and bringing guests along as well. So we are grateful for what you are bringing to us this morning. And good morning as well to those who are joining us on Facebook. I want to give a shout out to a newcomer who is um, running our Facebook live stream today. Lori has just come for a couple of times and she is willing to take over for Robin while Robin is off at the Nashville Preds game, uh, which she thought was the first time a West Staff person had asked for um, time off for a sporting event. Uh, which is which is possible, but we're very excited, and apparently they won. That's what I was told. So, yes, we're just celebrating with you. If you're watching, Robin, we're so happy for you. <laughs> when we began to um, think about and approach the theme of zest in June, I wondered what I would do with it. I don't know about all of you, but I have not been feeling quite as zesty as usual these last uh, few months. And I wanted to make sure that what I brought to this theme, what I said about zest, wouldn't feel trite or out of place. The last few months have been difficult for me. Let me see what, what months those are. Let's see if I count from what was the date, maybe like a November uh, 9th, was it? Then December, January, February. So what we're working on, uh, you know, seven months or so of... um, No, it's not been seven months, has it? It's less than that. Anyway, perhaps you have had some hard months, roughly corresponding with those months as well. As Tony mentioned during the meditation, this past week has been especially draining, especially difficult. America's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord, international violence and the rise of domestic white supremacist terrorism here in the States, families being torn apart by ICE locally here in the D.C. area and across the country. Sometimes I think The platforms that I give are the ones that I most need to hear. (laughs) The ones I wish someone would say to me or that I need to say to myself. And so as I have thought about zest, about what to do with this theme at this moment, I have wondered what it is that I need to hear. My first thought was, Forget zest. What we need right now is simply how to survive this difficult time. This time when every week it feels as though there is a new piece of news that breaks our hearts. Where we see our country living in such a way that is against the values that I know many of us hold so dear. I know that this has been hard times for you. Many of you have come to me and shared the, the way you have felt um, overwhelmed, the onslaught of, um, of difficulty in the country, and the way that it makes other things in our lives harder, too. I don't know if you've noticed that or experienced that. I find that people these days are on edge, anxious, sad, 
And I don't want to suggest we shouldn't be those things. That's what I wanted to make sure not to do, not to just offer a platform that said, well, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, you know, bring zestfulness into our life without an understanding of the challenges that we face. And I mean that broadly, not just the challenges in our country, but the challenges any one of us might be facing at this time. Life challenges sadness and grief that's just simply part of the course of living. So while I don't want to suggest that those things should go away out of our consciousness or that we should imagine they are not there, at the same time, I have a strong sense that in order to survive, to grow stronger, we need to make sure not to give in completely to those feelings of grief the feelings of anxiety or worry that can overwhelm us. We need to find a way forward, a way through, that neither buries our heads in the sand nor finds that the world incapacitates us. So, of course, I did what I often do. I went on Facebook and asked the community there what it is that has kept you going over the last few months? What has been giving you strength? And I loved the answers that people shared with me. One person wrote that every few months he gets together with old friends and they sing songs of resistance together. The old songs from the civil rights movement and the labor movement, new songs that are being written now in this time. They gather around with guitars and auto harps and voices and sing together. Robin wrote that the hockey game is what's keeping her going these days, the joyfulness of being with people all rooting for the same thing in one moment. A similar answer, I think, came from someone who was going to a a Wonder Woman screening. (laughs) That was quite popular this weekend. Folks saying they were going off to Wonder Woman with a group of women who they found to be strong and courageous their own band of Amazons. People talked as well about watching the strength of the resistance movement of the protest at an airport during the first travel ban that turned into a three-day long sit-in about the money raised by the ACLU at that time, $16,000 in mere moments, about going to marches and indivisible meetings. People spoke too about supporting each other, about the ways that they had seen communities that had felt disparate or disconnected before suddenly come together in vital and life-giving ways. Neighbors who hadn't really formed a bond previously coming together to meet weekly and share with each other. Families and children connecting together. Here at the Washington Ethical Society, we have what are called deepening circles, which are small groups of people that meet typically for about a year. And we'll be doing a special drive this June, inviting people in to start new deepening circles, to join the ones that are existing and start new ones, and even to start some shorter-term ones, ones that will meet for just a few months, Um, connecting circles, we're calling them. All of those are ways for us to be with each other, I think, to connect and support each other through difficult times. And then folks talked about supporting themselves 
One person took up abstract painting in the last few months. Others have been watching fun TV shows. In fact, one of those neighborhood groups that meets, it's a group of political activists, and she, she, the woman who's part of it says that the first order of business every time is for people to share what funny books they have read and TV shows and movies they have watched, and those go in the minutes. <laughs> Key ways to keep up your spirit for activists meeting together. I know several of you have opted out of some television shows. Someone said recently they can't watch House of Cards right now, too close to home. But I love television as a means of escape, funny TV shows, silly TV shows. And for me, they also offer what I think of as the zest that is needed in this era of resistance. Humor. Comedy. I mean, you have to admit there is some good material out there right now. Every week as Saturday Night Live grows closer, people send teasers around. What will we see this week? How will Melissa McCarthy give us life for the week ahead? Comedians help us to move out of our apathy, I think, and also to handle the stress around us. Some of the best anti-racism work that I have seen recently is coming from comedians and video bloggers. I actually have a dream <laughs> that um, here at West we'll have an anti-racism gathering, an anti-racism training, which consists entirely of anti-racist comedians. Um, a night of no racism and all laughter. You know, there's some great stuff out there, Aziz Ansari, um, uh, many folks who are bringing anti-racism work in funny ways. Here at the Washington Ethical Society, we have had some of that comedy as well in our Follies um, earlier this year in the Resistance open mic that's coming up in a couple of weeks in June in a sketch comedy group that has started people coming together to create sketches and ideas for that Resistance uh, open mic wanting to find ways to bring humor and wit and wisdom to this moment. Irma Bombeck, the late and great humor writer, once said, there is a thin line that separates comedy and tragedy, laughter and pain, humor and hurt. And we see that, I think, in our lives all the time. Everything from the sort of inappropriate laughter, you know, when something terrible happens, to the way that laughter can be a healing source for those of us in the midst of grief. Frequently when I'm planning memorial services with folks, we'll get to that part in the planning where the laughter can come out, the stories about the person that they have lost, the things that gave joy and life to them. And I can see that beyond the grief, not quite on the other side, but somehow mingled with it, you know, there will too be love and humor and laughter. And I think that that has been even more true during this time of resistance, during this time of national anxiety. There's a CNN article that speaks to this. It started, in the age of Donald Trump, it's not the Democrats leading the opposition, it's the comedians. 
Sure, it goes on, congressional Democrats are voting and speaking out against Trump's proposals on issues like health care, but few of them can garner national headlines or get a video to go viral. Comedians, on the other hand, are now the ones with a bully pulpit to raise issues in ways that dominate our social media feeds and impact the larger political conversation. We saw an example this week with Jimmy Kimmel, this was written a couple weeks ago, with Jimmy Kimmel's emotional plea to preserve coverage for pre-existing conditions in the Trump-championed health care bill. I don't know if any of you saw that story. Jimmy Kimmel spoke about his own child's uh, recent surgery and um, his family's privilege in being able to have that surgery and make sure that <clears throat> they could worry only about their child's health and not about the bills that could bankrupt them. And talking about the importance of every parent to be able to have that available to them, that they could worry just about their child and not about the bills. Comedians, the article goes on, often called court jesters or fools in literature, have a long history of using humor to speak uncomfortable truths. In Shakespeare's plays, the fool was able to address social and political realities in ways that the lead characters rarely could, using humor as his shield. And even before Shakespeare, Dutch writer Erasmus wrote, that the fool, quote, can speak truth and even open insults and be heard with positive pleasure. Indeed, the words which would cost a wise man his life are surprisingly enjoyable when uttered by a clown. Even our children know this, the way that stories and foolishness can bring out the reality, the truth of the world. You might think of the children's story, The Emperor's New Clothes, as someone points out the reality of what other people are pretending not to see. And I think, too, of um, religious and folk celebrations over many ages, ones that, that take the status quo and lift it on its head. Purim in the Jewish tradition, um, Saturnalia, other um, uh, Christian festivals where the poor were lifted up and the jester became the king upending the, the empire that the people were sitting within. Jeremy McClellan writes, comedy is inherently anti-authoritarian. As Stanley Hauerwas once said, if you desire to rule the world, the incomprehensibility of the world must be denied or tamed. What cannot be tolerated are forms of humor that might make the attempt to control the world, to control a dangerous world absurd. In short, you are not God, and it's the job of the comic to remind you of that. There have been, in fact, times in the last few months when I found I could only handle the news if it was delivered to me by comedians. I don't know if you've had that experience, but where I have skipped the regular nightly news and even reading the New York Times or the Post online because I know it will be delivered to me by Jon Stewart back in the day or by Trevor Noah in a way that I can manage more fully. They'll give me the actual information, right? But it will be in a way that allows me a short bark of laugh or a groan while I digest it. And of course, sometimes I do just need to laugh. Sometimes there is an element of humor which is purely escapism, just an opportunity to be outside of where we are. 
We need that not just when the world is hard, but when our lives are hard. There's actually a religious movement you might have heard of um, that is centered entirely around the experience of laughter. It's gaining traction in the world, began in India, and is led by a guru there. And um, it's, it's built on the idea that laughter, if you laugh, you know, you might have heard this about smiling too. If you just smile or laugh, you'll actually eventually send um, signals back to your brain that put you in a different mood. You can alter your mood by incorporating the physicality of smiling and laughter into your body. And so the idea behind this um, religious laughter is that if we incorporate the physicality of laughing deeply into our lives over and over again in a kind of meditative experience or ritual, we fundamentally change our experience in the world, who we are. And we have the power then, just like any meditative technique that's shared by people, to change the experience in groups, to change the world. I don't ascribe to that particular religious um, belief and, and tradition, obviously. I don't spend hours of my day in the meditative experience of laughing. But I do find that without laughter, all is lost. <laughs> when I was um, thinking about coming here to this congregation nine years ago, I remember meeting with the search committee and finding that they were a group of earnest people who cared very deeply about changing the world, but that also, thank goodness, they knew how to laugh. The one without the other would be a little deadly, wouldn't it? <laughs> that idea of laughter and humor zest in our life is important. I have been inspired over the months by people who experience far worse situations than we do, certainly than I do now, and by their refusal to give up joy. I want to be clear that I'm in no way comparing my situation to theirs. As a white, economically privileged person, I'm in no immediate danger in this America. I am married to a man and documented in this country. And yet, I find that I can be inspired still by those who have, much, have lived through much more significant um, experiences, experiences of loss of immediate security, imminent danger, dehumanization. I went recently to the African American Museum um, and walked through from the basement of the building um, as you go through from the early 1500s um, or 1400s all the way through to modern day. And one of the things that I found most meaningful through all of the horrors and um, atrocities experienced, what I found most meaningful were the exhibits that spoke to the joy that was claimed. The way that um, even as enslaved people, African Americans found a way to dance, to dress up, to meet secretly, often at great peril, because the reclamation of joy was part of retaining their humanity in the most dehumanizing of experiences. 
All throughout history, we see people clinging to joy, finding that zest and humor and love, dancing, beauty, are vital to the human experience. Even when you might imagine that they have no space left in their lives for those experiences, that they could not possibly come in. Still, they reach out for zest and joyfulness. I think there is a reason for this, even beyond the retaining of humanity in truly desperate conditions. I think for those of us like myself now who are living in a time not of personal insecurity and desperation, but of anxiety for my country and for the people of my country, humor not only allows me an opportunity of escape, but also makes it possible for me to stay engaged, paradoxically. You know, we've talked about that need for the balance between escapism and engagement, the need to step away and get away from it all sometimes, and then make sure that you have enough strength to come right back in it. I read an article a while ago that um, was written by someone who had lived through an authoritarian regime and one of the things he said was that it was easy to get used to things going badly. You know, that it was amazing, in fact, what people could get used to. You keep on going to school and going to work every day, going to the food store and coming back. He had lived through um, not just an authoritarian regime, but a place of uh, regular violence. And he said, you know, you still kind of poke your head out the door in the morning, see if it's safe to cross the street, and then get up and go to the grocery store, because you have to get groceries. You can get used to anything, he said. For me, it's the zest and the joy, the humor that keeps me from being inured to what is around me. That reminds me through satire or comedy that the emperor has no clothes. Reminds me not to see clothes where there are none, not to imagine regularity and normalcy where it doesn't exist. And then too, sometimes the zest that I find, the joy I find, isn't kind of satire or comedy, but the kind that simply speaks to the beauty of the world as it could be. Aside from um, work uh, opportunities, the most multiracial environment that I'm in on a regular basis is my Zumba class. I'm in multiracial environments and at work all the time, you know, sort of among other clergy in the D.C. area, but we're usually focusing on something we're trying to get done with each other. At Zumba, we are just, I would say dancing, but that might be a stretch for what most of us are engaged in doing. We are um, attempting to do something similar to what the instructor is doing at the front who looks amazing. <laughs> so there we all are in our little spots at the Y. The class is so full. It's a Saturday morning class at 8 a.m. And uh, it's so full that they had to put a cutoff, a limit, on the number of people who could come. You have to arrive early now to get your pass. And we file in women and a couple of men of all different races and ethnicities, different uh, original languages, different first languages, 
um, in our Zumba clothes, in Zumba, you are encouraged to wear as much neon as possible. I don't know how familiar you are with the Zumba look, but it's like neon, and, and I don't have these clothes, but they're, they're like shredded leggings, look really cool, very bright shoes. So everyone is wearing neon, um, all ages there from what look like college age people to uh, seniors. And, um, and, and we dance. The music comes on and, and we mess up and, you know, laugh at ourselves as the instructor tries to get us to whoop as much as possible. It's a lot to whoop at eight in the morning, I will say, on a Saturday. But there we are being egged on by the instructor, you know, to give a yell as we go through our different routines, as we successfully make it through one. At the very end of our Zumba class, our instructor has us make a circle all around. So we've been in lines, you know, through this big gym space, and she has us make a circle. We all get in this circle, and usually the people in the beginning, the people who are new to the class don't know they're supposed to be in the circle. They end up in the middle, then they get confused. So we finally get ourselves straightened out, or curved out, as the case may be. And she leads us through our final Zumba dance in this circle so that we can see each other while we're dancing. It's the easiest Zumba dance, so most of us actually do it successfully. And we watch each other as we dance and at some point go in sort of a circle ourselves and turn and spin and then stretch and cool down with each other. This is the time in the Zumba class when I try not to just cry. Not because I'm tired, although I usually am by then. <laughs> but because it feels like this little microcosm of what the world could be like and isn't yet. The world could be like Zumba at the Y. You know, that's my dream. <laughs> that it is this multiracial, multigenerational community of people dancing together. Some of us pretty badly, except there's not really bad dancing in Zumba. You're just there for yourself, as the instructor reminds us again and again. That kind of zest, the kind that isn't about satirical humor, but is simply about joyfulness, about the beauty that is possible for us, that kind of zest is important, too. There was a, an article that came out just yesterday, a photo, really, almost, and headline, showing a protest at Trump Tower in New York City recently, where the Muslims who were there were bowing in um, prayer. They were engaging in one of their daily prayers. And to protect them, all of the Jews at the protest formed a circle around them so that they could pray safely in the midst of that protest and then return to it. That, too, is the world that could be. There's a song I love um, that's really a, a poem by Rumi, the um, Sufi poet, set to... Uh, um, set to music. And we've sung it here sometimes, you know, it goes, come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Ours is no caravan of despair. 
Come, yet again, come. This little poem has a lot more to it than it seems. It's about welcoming in everybody, however different they are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. The second line, which isn't part of the song, is though you have broken your vows a thousand times, though a thousand times you have lost faith or lost hope, come, yet again come. Ours is no caravan of despair. To me, a community like this is a place that reminds us not to live in a caravan of despair, but instead to look for zest and joy and laughter and beauty wherever we can find it. And I see it here often. I see it in the federal employees support group as people gather in solidarity. I see it in the red and blue communication group where people are learning to talk across borders and barriers. I see it in the sanctuary group here working to support immigrant families. Ross Wells and Patty Absher were down at the White House and Ross was arrested. I got a little text when he got out of his civil disobedience um, arrest. And more importantly, even than that, are the relationships that he and others in the sanctuary group are building within the immigrant community and with other faith institutions as they do that work. I see so many ways that we remind each other that this is indeed no caravan of despair, but that laughter and love and beauty are vital, that zest is a part of the world at all times. I want to close with a poem by Ruth Schwartz. It's called Talking to God on the Seventh Day. You're not so sure about this world? Listen, take another look. The joyful, reckless, barking dogs, convinced of doom, hysterical, or only proud to own the yard, the block, the wind, the raised welt of their voices roughening your dreams, the new leaves slightly bent like fingers on guitar, rippling their cord of twigs, and the still bare slingshot branches, naked as the tails of rats, Liminal as roots, the squirrel crushed in the road, its tail still waving in the wind of passing cars, a flag, and the blackest of black crows breaching the body with its surgeon beak, black needles of its feet so pleased with death, which is also meat and life. Another squirrel, its rapid jaws muttering around a nut, my number, not up yet, not yet, bub, not yet. Now tell me why you ever thought you could improve on this music, this hunger. <laughs>